Well, we're going to take a short break from the book of Romans this morning and get some perspective from Scripture related to all that's going on in the world. Quite frankly, as I began studying early last week, Monday, Tuesday, to talk about some of the nuances of the law and how the Mosaic law applies to believers or, or not with all of the things going on around us, I, I was, was compelled to, to go here. It's a message that's going to encourage your hearts as you navigate the times in which you, you, you live in, and it's also going to hopefully help you filter out the voices uh, to, that, are, that are vying to explain it to you, maybe bring you some, some biblical clarity. The passage that you heard this morning and the one that we're going to, to read, even look at right before that, are, are, are familiar passages, passages that, that you probably know, you, you may have even seen in, in, uh, in things talking about what's coming in the end and, and things like that. And when you read a passage like that, it can be, uh, um, how should I say it, uh, uh, theory they can be words or you can hear people preach about these these things with 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 great vitriol that is until you start living them and and you're in the midst of them and and, and then they become like water to to, to dry ground your, your soul just just soaks them up um, we're here today watching what happens on the on the news but yesterday there were churches that, that are our churches, churches that are our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and also outside of Jerusalem, um, that met yesterday with, with Jewish believers, Arab believers, Christians that are there with all of their 18 to 30-year-olds absent in uniform in Gaza or, or in the north. And as we mentioned earlier, a few hours away from from a very bloody battle. And you can just imagine what's happening right now over in our old sanctuary, which is boundless. I know it is uh, uh, Thanksgiving break or, or fall break, I should say. And normally there's a couple hundred students over there. I don't know how many are there this morning, but you just imagine no students being there because they are they're, they're about ready to go into, in, into war and people that would be even absent in, in this group. And those Christians gathered yesterday and, and looked to the Word of God to, to make sense out of what was happening and to process and to pray even for, for their, their own children and cousins and uncles. Um, I mentioned Boaz. In the midst of that mass, there are believers and unbelievers like like the, 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 the man that was the sergeant, Boaz's son. And as we sit here this morning, there are 300,000 Israeli troops amassed on the Gaza border, another 50,000 in the north, and that doesn't include a standing army of 150,000. Um, that's of a population of about 7 million Israelis, 7 million Jews, I should say. There's about another 2 million Arabs and others, Israeli Arabs, it's in a country about the size of New Jersey. And just to give you some context, when, when you hear the comparisons of how many people died in the, in the massacre, you know, a thousand plus is, is Israelis, heard someone compare. If you want to compare populations, think of it this way. If 40,000 Americans had died on 9-11, that's a good correlation of a, of a thousand Israelis con, concerning the, the population. The tragedy of, of 9-11, there were 40,000. There's a U.S. carrier strike group sitting in the med right now, as I'm speaking, which includes the, the largest and newest aircraft carrier we have. British warships on the way, a second U.S. group on the way. There are no doubt U.S. special operators already in Gaza looking for the U.S. hostages that are there, Israelis no doubt already operating there in a ground invasion imminent. That's on top of a war ongoing in Ukraine, China being aggressive toward Taiwan, threats of additional unrest in the Middle East. These are serious matters for sure. But in one sense, they're par for the course in a, in a fallen world. Some of you, I, 
I don't know if anybody in here is, is still alive that fought in World War II, but some of you surely lived through it. And if not that, Vietnam and in Korea, many of you in here lived through the Gulf Wars, Saddam Hussein. Most of you recall 9-11, Osama bin Laden, Afghanistan. All of you, unfortunately, went through COVID. The incessant turmoil in politics, not to mention bouts of economic upheaval, Democrats leading, uh, winning and leading the country, the Republicans back and forth. And quite frankly, COVID and those kind of things, most seem most of those seem pretty small in the face of war, radical Islamic terrorism. And all of that is laid on the backdrop of a godless culture that calls good evil and evil good and and perversion that can hardly be, be spoken about, much less talked about. There is a lack of moral clarity that's dumbfounding. You likely saw protests over the weekend, whether it was Harvard or otherwise, denying Hamas did anything wrong to Israel or supporting acts of, of the terrorists as justified against Israel's quote-unquote aggression. I mean, we live in a world that's lost the ability to discern good from, from evil. It's totally disconnected from, from logic, but, but that's also been the case since the fall. And the, the reason that you should care is about those things is summed up in what my friend Minnow Callister said even this more early this morning. We should always remember that there is a spiritual war that, that is raging, not a political one. What happens inside Israel's borders is just a sample of what will happen to all nations at, at one point. You put on top of all that the capitulation of many churches, gospel-preaching brothers falling for deceptions and distractions like wokeism, entire denominations, embracing aspects of social justice and other errors. I could go on, but, but you know the world that you're living in. And as we try to digest all of that, even a faithful believer needs to be reminded of where it's all heading in the end and, and resetting their, their footing as they're, as they're waiting for, for, for that moment to take place. I mean, we look around and we see things going haywire and we can't get overwhelmed or not know how to make sense out of it or, or get fearful. Late Adrian Rogers said a Christian should navigate life with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. And I would say the key to whether you have peace or travail is determined by the order in which you look at them. You look at the newspaper and then your Bible versus your Bible and then your newspaper. That will, that will determine how your heart goes. I mean, the news on TV tells us it's hopeless. Driving viewership, world leaders say, follow me, listen to me. Political candidates, candidates are, are opportunists. We'll just elect them. They'll fix it all. But what... What, what followers of Jesus Christ ask is, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible interpret these, these types of things? When the contemporary world looks like it's lost its mind or glo global war breaks out, a believer must remember there's another vantage point that we go to in God's unchanging word, and there we, we find the answers. There we find God's thoughts, not even our own. And that's exactly where I took... My friend Boaz, this past week, spoken to him every day, his son, along with many other Israeli sons and daughters, about to plunge into the lion's den. And, and I encouraged him, after listening to him, I encouraged him to read Romans 13 and Romans 11. But here's two places I want you to read. Romans 13 says God has given governments the sword to remove evil. That is what the IDF is, is about ready to do. That's their purpose, God-given. Romans 11 says the Messiah will save Israel. Or, or Romans 11 says God will save Israel through their Messiah, not, not an army. We'll get here at one point, but Romans 11 says, see Apostle Paul. It says, for I, do not want you to, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. How will they be saved? The Bible has already told us. The Deliverer will come. The Messiah will come from Zion, who will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's Israel. This is my covenant with them, the future covenant, 
when I take away their sins. From the, so from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They will be saved through, through Christ alone, but God still has future plans for, for Israel at His second coming. And that God is no different today. While Israel as a nation is in rebellion against the Lord because they've rejected their Messiah, God has not forsaken and He will not forsake them now. I mean, we can be unfaithful to Him, but, but He'll never be unfaithful to us. And those answers I want to help you with this morning. So I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to remind you what God says about the very days that we're, we're living in and where to look for answers. I mean, the Bible reminds us of this, the same truth that's, that's echoed in, in Romans 11 for us as believers today. God who did things in the past is, is still doing things today and still will do things in the future. And as the Scripture predicts, we, we see God's plan unfold. The very days that we're living in are spoken about in the, in the Bible. The, the, the Word of God methodically and resolutely marches from the fall in the garden to the cross of Calvary and then from the cross to the end of the, of the age. In the period between Christ's ascension and the book of Acts, when, when you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing? The same Jesus that's, that rises is, is the same one that's going to come. The period between Christ's ascension and his coming for the church is called the latter days, the last days. And those are the times that we're living in now. And, and the, the scripture tells us that, that what these days will be like. It calls them perilous times, difficult times in the passage that we'll look at. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is all about the time that we're, we're, we're living in. Uh, Verse 1 through 9 describes the days. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, his last letter to Timothy before he dies, he says, but realize this, in, in the last days, difficult times will, will come. Describes the days and the people of the days, for men will be, verse 2. And then if you drop down to verse 10, which is the passage that Paul read to us this morning, not the Apostle Paul, but our Paul, it declares what the demands of believers, where believers look. Verse 10, now you followed my teaching. So there, there will be men who will come in these last days, but then there's the you. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, and patience. At the end of verse 11, persecutions, and out of them the Lord rescued us, us all. So between the first and second coming of Christ, there will be perilous times filled with poisonous men and that will demand the people of God look to the word of God and not flinch. And if you miss God's diagnosis of these days, then you'll misdiagnose the, the problem that we face and you may be tempted to respond to what you see around you emotionally or fearfully when, when believers are supposed to respond biblically. If you fail to look at God's direction about these days, then, then you could forget God's promise of deliverance despair or you'll end up trying to find different solutions which are which are the wrong if if you look at second timothy chapter three the, the entire chapter gives us four biblical insights for perilous times these times four insights biblical insights for, about the days between christ's ascension and his second coming what what will these days be like and, and how do believers process them God declares there will be perilous times. In verse 1, he describes the type of people, poisonous men that will fill these days. In verses 2 through 9, but in them God preserves the people of, of God. In verses 10 through 13, and then he delivers us by the word of God. The word of God is where we look for, for an anchor and for hope. In verses 14 through, through 17. Perilous times, poisonous men, the preservation of God's people, and then the deliverance by the Word of God, the answers found in Scripture. Let's look at the first one. God declares these perilous times. The first biblical insight comes from God's direction about these times. Look, if you would, at verse 1. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, 
difficult times will come. And, and in that very first verse, there's a warning about the time, the period of time that's in view, and then the depiction of, of that time. I mean, Paul begins here with a warning or a declaration about the, the times. I mean, the very days that we live in. He says, realize this or be assured of this. Don't be mistaken about this. Don't be lulled to sleep thinking that, that somehow it's going to get, get better or these things aren't going to be there. God says, don't be surprised by what is taking place around us during these times. Be assured they are coming. It's not a maybe so, it's an assuredly so. And there will surely be lots of reviews about what happened in Israel. How could this happen? And what did they miss? And, and one thing can be sure, Israel didn't think this could happen. It had been 50 years since the Yom Kippur War when an Arab coalition of 10 countries launched a surprise attack on, on Yom Kippur, October 6, 1973. And 50 years later, it was Hamas, and if the Lord, if his turn, return tarries, there will be others. And Paul says to Timothy, don't fear as if some strange thing is, is taking place. We know these things will happen and know your task is to think biblically whenever they, they do. This is, not a, uh, this is a warning, uh, and it's not to make us fatalistic, it's to give us boldness and, and faith. I mean, God doesn't tell you that these times are coming or these are the things that you live in to say, oh, well, we're just in the last days. Let's just let evil people run, run wild. Sit on your hands. Or what will be, will be. It's so you remain vigilant. So you'll be aware. When they do come, you'll trust in the, trust in the Lord and you'll obey His Word like, like Romans 13. You'll trust in Him and not your own capabilities. But, but when they come, you, you should say, my God's already told me about these things because He rules over all of history. And in our current situation, this Sunday, like, like last, this year, like the next, we still follow Christ and we, we still follow the one who's reigning in heaven and we'll continue to walk by faith in His unchanging Word. And that Word says everything you see around you is exactly what will mark these days. Look at verse 1 again. He says, realize this, that in the last days, and it defines the period of time, difficult times will come, these last days. I mean, the period that we currently live in is called the, the last days. It's a reference that Paul uses over and over through the Bible, not just Paul, but the writer of Hebrews. And it's the period between the, the first and second coming of Christ. It's literally the end times. And I understand when you hear the word the end times, you think of Tim LaHaye or Revelation and Armageddon. But that's what comes in the end, at the very end of these latter days, the end of the end times. These latter days, is a, it's a period of unknown length that meanders along from the ascension and, but builds in deterioration until we, we get to the end. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 24 when, when his disciples ask him, when is this going to be and, and what will be the sign? Look at what Jesus says. He says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are really the beginning of birth pangs. How do we know that we're not in the tribulation yet? Because Jesus says conflict and warring nations and environmental tragedy and natural disasters are a sad part of the fall. They've been going on since the Garden of Eden, since Genesis 4, whenever Cain murdered Abel. The warring that took place after that. Notice he says, you will be hearing of these things and they will rise. There's two parts to this. These things are part of the curse. He, Jesus says it's normal for, for a world under it, and a world that's in rebellion against its creator, and a world that lies in the hands of the wicked one. Not only that, look what Jesus says in verse 20, uh, 21 and 22. It should be 22 and 23. Look at verse 21. He says, for then, talking about when the end actually does come, for then... There will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. 
unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. I mean, notice the distinct and exclusive nature of what's coming in the the very end. Jesus says it's not a thousand Israelis or 40,000 or or how many ever number that that, that will be in the wars that have taken place or the millions of Jews in the Holocaust. He says that that unless the days of that what's, what's coming in the end, unless that time, that period is shortened, there wouldn't be any human beings left on the earth. They, they would all be perished. They would all perish. Now, this is something that's coming that's unknown to history. It's unique to the future. I mean, what we experience right now is tribulation, for sure. It's gripping. It's gutting. But when the day of great tribulation comes, it's not going to be localized or normal. It will be a time like has never been, nor ever will be again, Jesus said, thankfully. And the days that precede it are called the latter ones. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a period that begins at the, the coming of Christ, the gift of the Spirit, and it moves until, until He returns. And no man knows when, when the end of the, the calendar is. Look at when it begins. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Notice the same term. And it shall be in the last days, this period between the ascension and His, his coming again, God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. I mean, Luke defines the latter days as a period that starts at the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it will continue until Christ comes. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. In these last days, he, that's God, has spoken to us by his son. In these latter days, Christ comes whom he appointed an heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The phrase, the last days, simply means that these are the last days of God's redemptive calendar. These are days that are not the beginning days when when, when, when the Messiah's people, Israel, were being formed. They're not the days in the time of the bridegroom when the bridegroom, when Christ walked the earth, but the days in which the bridegroom goes away to prepare for His coming, to take His his bride out of the world. These are the days that the bride, that is Christ's church, are being prepared, meaning the church is being gathered, which is exactly what Jesus says in in Matthew 16. I will build my church. That's what He's doing in in these last days. He's not building a kingdom. He's he's building a church. The kingdom's coming. They're days which, in which nothing else needs to be completed before His return. These are the days that we minister in. And that should excite you. I mean, listen, these are serious times, but they're not times to be depressed or, or fearful because Christ is building His church in the middle of them. And not only that, we're one trumpet blast away from the Lord's return. And He'll split the sky. And He'll call Himself to us and forever will be with, with our Savior. I mean, realizing that ought to turn your anxiety into joy when you see all the craziness in the news. I mean, think, I'm living one step away, one step away from the king. And not only that, you have no idea what's going on. Think back to COVID, right? I mean, everybody talking about exactly what was going to happen, two weeks and then one month. I mean, did you think it was going to be two years? You have no idea what's going to unfold in the Middle East, but I will tell you what, Jesus Christ knows what's going to unfold in the Middle East. And while that's a, our exciting future, these still these days are still called perilous. I mean, the, the description of the time that God gives is difficult or grievous. So here's the warning. Realize this, talking about the specific days, the days we're living in, verse 1, that in the last days, difficult times, perilous times will come. This word difficult or perilous is a term used one other time in Matthew 8.28 describing the demoniac of the Gadarenes where it's translated violent. Paul says these are violent times where violence is done to the truth and violence is done to the church and violence is done to mankind. Plutarch, the Greek writer, used this term to describe an ugly, infected, and dangerous wound. They're infected times. They're dangerous times. They're ugly times. This is an honest and compelling evaluation of what life will be like under the sun between the first and second coming of Christ. And so while the thought of Christ coming lifts our souls, we must not be naive about the world that we live in and its opposition. We must not become sleepy 
or try to put down comfortable roots here or think that somehow that you can remove the violence. You can't. You go to a lot of places. I mean, I, I see social media stuff like you do and other things, people, well-intentioned people saying, you know, let's not wage a culture war. Let's make sure that we, you know, we speak equally for, for this group or, or that group. So, you know, let's preach the gospel. And I get it. I, I really do. You understand what they mean? You want to keep the main thing, the main thing. But that's also incredibly naive, isn't it? And we're already in a cultural war. And a physical one is coming. I mean, mankind declared war on God in the garden. And the culture did so to Jesus Christ and his followers 2,000 years ago. I mean, one writer said this. He said, here's the bottom line. No amount of niceness or of social justice advocating, of human trafficking, opposition, listening to the right bands, wearing the right clothes, of poverty relief, or reading N.T. Wright, or whatever cool Christian stuff you can align with, will remove the reproach of Christ if you choose to follow his teaching. That's true. You're on a fool's errand if you're trying to remove opposition or remove evil in, in the world. You're supposed to do something to evil that I'll tell you in just a minute, but you're not going to remove it. If you're trying to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for, for Christ's sake, you'll find it, Matthew 16, 25. Better to have Jesus and his reproaches than, than to not have him at all, Mark 8, 34. Your church, you're in a war whether you want to be one in not, or not, and you have to make sure that you stand on the Lord's side. And you need to think biblically. I mean, Paul says the times are violently hazardous. I mean, think about how utterly foolish it is then to try to gain acceptance from the world that's in opposition to God. Or think unbelievers will ever befriend the church. I mean, what complete silliness it is to try to, to, to use ministry strategies to, to attempt to make Jesus palatable to those who hate him from their hearts. I mean, only conversion can change a heart. And conversion can only happen when you preach a clear gospel that condemns before it before it's saved. But you can't be ignorant about the culture because it's filled with, with poisonous men. There's this description that, that he gives of the people that are in the times. I understand you, you, you come upon this list. Let's look at the list. Verse, verse 2. For men will be lovers of selves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, and about there you tune out, right? Because it's just so long. I mean, I can't even process the words that I just, just, but it goes on, verse 3. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of, of good. Verse 4, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, though they have denied his power. I mean, notice it, it, this whole section that describes the people that are living during this time. It starts with a little word for. For, which is the reason these troublesome times will come. They will come because people like this will be living in the world. And here's a long list where God describes that these poisonous people living in our days. If you want to summarize the list, there's characteristics he talks about their deception, their tactic of deception, and then ultimately their condemnation. The characteristics are summarized in verses 2 through 5. They love self, they're indifferent toward others, and they hate God. They love themselves, they can care less about everybody else, and they hate God. Exactly the opposite of loving God and then loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's pretty plain. They're just like their father, the devil. Paul begins here, though, with one word. I think it's at the headwaters for a reason. There'll be lovers of self, where we get our word Philadelphia. It has the pronoun altos here. It's philaltos. They love self. And people in this age love themselves. And if you have social media, I don't even need to comment on this one, do I? You should also instruct Christians how they're to use social media. They live for themselves. People like your family before you you left it when you were in the kingdom of darkness. You see how they how they behave. They're boasters. They're proud. They're blasphemous. The God that they love is the one that they see in the mirror, and they, and they're they're lovers of money, lovers of self, lovers of money. They amass things to consume on their own pleasures. They're driven by driven by personal ease. 
They're boasters. They're proud. They're, they're, they're arrogant and revilers, blasphemers. They, they boast of their accomplishments. They, they're lifted up because of them. They disregard the one who made them and gave them the ability to, to gain these things, and so they blast him, blaspheme him with their lives. That doesn't describe our world, doesn't it? And they're indifferent toward, toward others. And in the list, he starts with the most natural relationship to, man, to mankind. Parents, they're disobedient to parents. Because they love self, they have a disdain for authority. Even the most natural and basic ones that God has built into creation. And you understand, none of, none of the authorities that God's built into the world saves, but, but the Lord has a purpose for them. They're His gracious mercy that He's built into, into life even planning for the fall, knowing the fall was going to take place, God has built these things into, into humanity so it doesn't spin off the page. He's built authority into our world, which provides stability and eases the results of the fall. And those come in four forms. There's the conscience, the law that's written on the heart that we've been talking about in Romans. Everybody has that. Long before the law of Moses, there, there was the law that there's a right and wrong stamped on the heart. Then the family... God's established the family, authorities within it, the government, beyond that, and then the church. I mean, none of those things save those, those structures, but they keep a lid on the depraved world and wicked hearts. I mean, without them, the, everything spins out of control. I mean, think that's how you, you think biblically about what, what's happening in, in Israel right now. Look at, look at what Romans 13 says. Here, here's one of the the authorial structures that God's built in, into the world. It doesn't save, but, but it's His gracious mercy while evil is here, while you're in these last days or in any days after the fall. Do what is good, Paul says, and you will have praise from the same, talking about the authority of the government that God's built into the world. For it is a minister of God, a servant of God in, in this world to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For then it is a minister of God, another servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath, God's wrath, on the one who practices evil. You strip all the politics and noise out of the way and you can see clearly of what's going on. I mean, the Bible says that there's sin, which is falling short of God's target that we should hit. None of us in here have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's enough to condemn us. Then there's transgression. The Bible speaks about transgression. There, there, there's lines, there's law that God has drawn, and, and when we step over that line, that's a transgression. and That's more serious, whether we do that intentionally or ignorantly. And then there's wickedness. Scripture talks about wickedness, which is the habitual practice of both, falling short and not caring and stepping over lines. But beyond all of that, there's, there's, there's also something called evil. I mean, evil is the depth of human depravity beyond all those things. And it's often mingled with demonic influence, which is what you saw this past week with Hamas or Hitler or others. And Romans 13 says, you will find evil on the earth, but, but that evil cannot remain unopposed. It must be destroyed. It, it, God's servants must be an avenger of God's wrath in those, in those moments. Or else humanity would, 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 would spin out of control and the earth would become unlivable. And you remove that, that minister of God, that servant of God, where does it end? I mean, evil, evil just, just goes. And that's why God's given the sword to governments. They're a minister of God to bring His wrath on those who practice evil. Of course you can look and say, well, they're not practicing it properly here or, or, or there, but just in general, that, that's, that, that's the purpose. That's what Israel's army is right now. Regardless of the fact that, that Israel's in rebellion as a nation and they're unbelievers in the midst of that, they are God's sword dealing with, with, with evil. It's what our army was in World War II or 9-11. It's not going to remove evil completely, but it's a necessary retardant. It's a grace that God has given in, in the midst of the world that's fallen. It's how God keeps evil from taking over all over the earth it, while he is long-suffering before he brings his future and final wrath. Because when he comes and he deals 
sinners. There will be no chance for repentance or, or mercy. It will be full and it will be final. And yet our culture attacks every one of those those four structures, those four pillars that the Lord's built into society. It's attacked truth, tells people there's no right and wrong. We try to remove guilt from the conscience. I mean, making someone feel bad about themselves is the worst thing that you can do in our society. It's where all the hate speech stuff is aimed at. It's a, it's attacked the family, use of punishment. It attacks marital order, parental order, discipline, no spanking, no consequences for anything. Now it wants to remove authority from our society, no longer prosecuting crimes, defunding police. These are not just political statements. This, when, when you interpret these things through Scripture, you, you understand how serious that they are. I mean, trying to make false equivalents between policy in Israel and terrorists slaughtering innocent people. I mean, the aim of all of that is to remove the guardrails, remove it's Satan's goal to remove the, the mercy of God and the grace of God, which is tamping down sin. None of it saves, but it's God's mercy. Remove the guardrails from the heart, the family, the final barrier with the police, and if they're gone, then there's nothing left to restrain sin. John MacArthur said you should not be surprised then who they're coming after next, who's next on the list. It's the church. Look at the end of verse 2. They're unthankful and unholy. The attack authority, even the good authorities that God's built into society, they're ungrateful, unholy. They don't give thanks because they're proud. It leads to an unholy life, unloving, unforgiving, and slanders. And when wronged, they, they show no mercy. They assassinate the character of others. They're treacherous. Verse 4, they're without self-control. They're brutal. There's no restraint in the pursuit of pleasures or their own appetite, which is bottomless. They're haters of God. The end of verse 3, haters of good. It's a total disregard for anything good in the God who made them. They, they despise it. Headstrong, haughty. These men just don't do wrong. They hate right. Spurgeon said, if, if a man has lived in darkness his whole life, do you wonder that the light makes his eyes ache and therefore he hates it? They're traitors. They don't even keep the most basic loyalties. They're, basic, they're, they're loyal only to self. They're high-minded and proud. They think God's truth is just a quaint notion to be disregarded. Verse 4, the, 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 the end of it, the passage you know, the, the lover, the, they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's a summary statement of the entire list. They love their pleasures love their desires rather than love God. An unsaved person worships the God of self. He bows before his own altar, not his creator's. They, they may hold a form of godliness, but they're empty shells. Verse 5, holding a form of godliness, though they deny its power. In these days, there will be pretend Christians even. They have no power. They're only puff. They're like the empty juice boxes that you blow back up and you give to your little sister. That's what these people are. They're filled with air. Poisonous air, but air. And the Bible says from such people turn away because they can deceive. You know, he ends there. Verse 5, avoid such men as these that I've just described to you. Don't embrace them. Avoid them because they can deceive. Look at verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households and capture weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the, to the knowledge of the truth. I mean, it begins with a warning that from such turn away. And when you see these characteristics, don't run with them, run from them because they have a deceptive influence. Be careful who you, you allow to influence you, especially who teaches you the Word of God. They, they creep into households. They become angels of light. They creep in. While their characteristics should be clearly seen, their worldly teaching can be camouflaged. And the person who listens to them is described here as undiscerning, as gullible, unclear in their conscience. They're, they're, they're weighed down. Their conscience is loaded down with, with sin. You can't think right when you're in unconfessed sin. They're uncontrolled. They're led about by lusts. This describes someone who's weak in truth, weak in virtue. And godless women are their first targets, just like in the garden. The world has a seductive influence. It makes captives. When you listen to their ways, they, when you invite them into your heads, they, 
they take you captive by empty philosophies. I mean, long before Satan will ever convince you to do something wrong, he's going to convince you to think wrong. And before that, desire. Don't let that be your description. Be, be discerning, be forgiven, be free. Because it leads nowhere. Verse 7, they're always learning but never able to arrive at the destination of the truth, which is Christ and His forgiveness. I mean, Satan doesn't care if you're in the truth, around the truth, if you, you have it memorized just as long as you don't trust the truth. Finally, notice their condemnation. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of a depraved mind, they... they their biblical example here are the magicians that were of Pharaoh that opposed Moses as God's representative. They, they resist the truth just like, like then. Look at how he describes their fall. Men of a depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. They're, they're corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They're, they're reprobates, this word that's, that's used here. Is a, is a mind that's been tested and rejected. If you're one of those people that have heard the truth over and over and yet remain in sin, you should listen to this warning. I mean, every time you reject, it coats your hearts with, with calluses, which makes you harder and, and harder. And one day, you'll wake up unable to hear God at all. And Paul says, because they've rejected the truth over and over, they've been rejected by God in regards to the faith. That's, that's what this last phrase means, disqualified regarding the, the faith, rejected. You know, it was used for metals. It didn't pass the test of purity. It's discarded. It's, it's declared counterfeit. And he says that they'll, they'll not get far and they'll be exposed in the process. Resisted and disapproved and ultimately failed. Their folly should be evident to all. But, but watch how he turns here. God has better things for you, Christians. Verse 10. He says, but, but you, or now you, now you followed my teaching and conduct and purpose and faith and perseverance. You are not like them. That's what he's saying. While these men are bad examples, you also have good examples to follow. I mean, during perilous times, amongst poisonous men, we must be the people of God, directed by the Word of God. and They're models to, to follow. God directs you as His people. And while this world is ugly, God has not left us to the hyenas. There's a standard to follow and there's a suffering to, to endure. That's what he, what he says here. He starts with, but you, you are not like them. It's the idea. God always, God has no problem drawing lines in the Bible. There, there's Israel and there's the nations. There's the sheep and there's the goats. There's the church and there's the, the unbelieving world. God has no problem doing that. Now, you don't become one of God's because you're better or smarter. You, you become by, by grace and, and faith, but the Lord has no problem. He doesn't leave us all kind of muddled together and we just guess who gets sifted out in the end. But you, you're not like them, he says. If you're a believer, you're not like the world or the people that God just described. You have a different standard to follow, and you do. So Paul gives a list. My teaching, my conduct, my purpose. Christians follow specific teaching and specific doctrine during these perilous times. The people of God must, must carefully follow the teaching of the Bible and not be swayed by, by worldly philosophies. My way of life, Paul says, it's a life of purpose and faith and long-suffering, love and perseverance. It's, it's not easy, but it's worthy. And it's a life of opposition. There's a suffering to endure. There's a standard to follow. There's a suffering to endure. Look at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, the way he just described, in Christ Jesus, will face opposition. Persecutions, afflictions, just like Paul, we're to endure them all. Why? Because our hope is in the Lord. Notice what he says here. Out of them, the end of verse 11, out of them all. The Lord rescued me implying that even those who desire to live godly will be persecuted, but you'll also be rescued. And this is not just Paul's experience, but all of Christ's followers in, in these days between his first and second coming. We will suffer, but make sure for righteousness' sake. You likely won't suffer unless you're righteous, unless you follow Christ's teaching. I mean, if you're weak-willed and morally corrupt, 
that, that somebody who goes along to get along, then, then you won't find anything but acceptance from the world, but you'll be rejected by God. And the way you keep that from happening is to look to the Bible, which is your sufficient source. What he says here, the final instruction, beginning in verse 14 through 17, again, a passage that you know well, he, he points the people of God in the right place, in the sufficient source that both saves and sanctifies. Look at verse 14. God delivers His people through the Word of God. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been uh, assured of, been convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. Where's the salvation? through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, and also sanctification. In verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Now, to somebody who's come to salvation, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, or woman of God, the Christian, may be equipped, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that Paul says, you look to the Bible that educates you unto salvation and equips you in sanctification. What do you do with those little people that God gives you as children, or grandchildren, that are born with, with the same kind of heart that Adam had? You, you educate them unto salvation. You get them in the Bible. And then once they're there, once you're there, then, then you look to the Bible to equip them. It educates unto salvation. I mean, Paul tells Timothy to continue in, in what you've learned and believed and knowing from whom you learned it, the, the writings that that gave you the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Listen, don't, don't ever get too old, too learned, too sophisticated that you forget the simple gospel and the way of salvation. I mean, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's not just for children. One writer said, God is not found on the mountaintops of academia or the caverns of philosophy. He, he lives in the love of Christ who gave Himself for you to wash away your sins. Always remember that. The same Bible once believed for salvation is the only thing that you need to walk and grow. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. It instructs in sanctification. It's not just sanctification is just a fancy name for growing in Christ that Clay will continue to teach us about tonight. We become more and more like Him. Verse 16 says the Bible is from God, and it's profitable. You'll never have to question the trustworthiness of, of the Word of God because it's God's very breath that is uttered in its words. It's, it's profitable for you. It's profitable for teaching. It's systematic instruction. It's profitable for reproof. That's the negative side. It exposes false doctrine and bad thinking. Profitable for correction. It makes stri straight the doctrine that's wrong. And training in righteousness, it, it brings you up in the ways of God. And the end result is our maturity. That's how he ends in verse 17. Look at verse 17. That, so that, the man of God may be adequate, equipped. He's totally sufficient to form Christ in you. Completely equips us, this verse says. And look at what he tells us beyond that. Chapter 4, verse 1. So based on all that, the warning about the time, the type of people that are in the time, the... The, the, the fact that Christians are, are not that way, even though they live in the, live in the midst of it, that, that there is a word that can bring salvation and change the heart. And, and then even after that, there's a word that's, that's sure and can guide you and direct you. What do we do? Paul says, I solemnly charge you then in the presence of this God and Christ Jesus, who's coming again, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom points him to this same one who started the latter days with his ascension is coming again. And what do you do until he comes? You preach the word. Paul tells Timothy, after all that, to preach the word to others that they may hear regardless of the time and regardless of their, their response. And so in the firmness of hope of his coming, Paul says, preach the gospel. You preach the judgment that's coming. We sing it. I hear the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land, climb the mountains, cross the waves, onward tis the Lord's command, Jesus saves, he 
is the sick. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Jesus saved and God is not mocked. Whatever a man, a notion, a nation, a group of people sow, they shall also reap. The rest in this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, 2 Peter 2 9. So, what do we do? What are we about to do when we close? We're going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and Messiah's return. We're also going to pray for God's sword to remove evil. That's what you should be doing. Restraining evil through the sword. Pray for the salvation of many, but do not fear. Rejoice. If I could play a trumpet, I might pull one out right now. One note. One note. And over the precipice of heaven he comes to call us out of this world and to meet him in the air. On the day that won't that be a day, Christian? But here's how I want to close this morning. I want to pray. I want to pray in particular for, for people, 18 to 30 and many others, that are, there are people right now that are within hours away. They're facing eternity. They're going to be people that are going to be killed on the other side of that sword. Enemies that are going to perish and all of them unbelievers going into a Christless eternity. So I don't know how, but I want to pray even this morning that the Lord would, would save some in the midst of that. Let's do as we close. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people. We're not arrogant Gentiles. We are, we are well aware that we are wild olive branches grafted in we're there because of mercy and because we're better than the Jewish people even the ones that are in rebellion against you this morning having rejected their Messiah we're surely not better the, than the even the terrorists we don't do the same things that they do but but apart from your grace we, we would have been lost and we are aware that there are people that are about to face death and they're going to do that without you. And I confess, I, I do not know all of your purposes or everything that you're doing in the midst of this. I can see the big picture. I can see with biblical clarity, but, but I, I don't know your purposes, the individual pieces. And I have no idea how you would bring the gospel to unsaved Israelis or unsaved people in Gaza. But I pray that, that you would. Your arm is not shortened. And I pray, Lord, that you would save some. I pray that you would have mercy on all. And I pray that you would help us to think biblically and prepare ourselves for your soon return. We ask all this and give you praise in Jesus' name.